each of these squares have a number two. And they would enter the Turing machine as a problem to be solved. So you are the eyeball. And you only look at one square at a time. You are the eyeball and you can read these zeros and ones. Now to make this even more visual, look inside your pocket. You're an eyeball with a pocket. There should be a small booklet inside and it will have all the rules for solving this problem. You are the eyeball. You can look at this rule book and you will look through the rules every time you're at a new square. Square, 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 square. This week's discussion is who is or was Alan Turing and what is or was a Turing machine. The answer to is or was is was Alan Turing is dead and was the founder of modern computer science. And he was a clever namer of things. Most of the inventions of Alan Turing have really cool names or processes have really cool names. Not just the Turing machine, but a bunch of other stuff like the Bombay or the Bomb with a B-O-M-B-E and other really beautiful names like Delilah. Very few computer tools are named Delilah. Mr. Turing is a hero of the show for a number of reasons. He's cool. And with recent news that appeared during the recording of this week's show, it's been announced that as of this summer, June 2021, you can pay somebody about $70 in U.S. exchanged currency to get a picture of Alan Turing on a 50-pound banknote from the Bank of England. I mean to say he will become money. Good job, Alan. And so somebody can then pay you in a single Alan Turing, and that'll be a 50-pound banknote in UK money. This is good news for Alan Turing, and it also opens up a conversation about evil or wrong done by a previous government in previous times to its people and the helplessness of a current generation to undo the harm done by the previous generation. For example, while this banknote might have been perceived as an honor for Alan Turing's work in code breaking or his role in establishing concepts of artificial intelligence, it also brings up sentences like, oh right, the UK government killed Alan Turing. <laughs> killed him in a really terrible way about 70 years ago. And when you kill your probably most gifted son, you know, when a country kills its most gifted son, it is really tough to pay off with a banknote. And they know it. It's tough. Regarding that damage done, it is still deeply sad what happened to Alan Turing. He, it's kind of a modern kind of morality horror that was inflicted upon him. And a funny thing about it, in its simplest, it comes down to a basic mistrust that many people still have about calling the police. I use Alan Turing as an example when people say, I just don't understand why people don't trust the police. And I, uh, I ask them if they know about Alan Turing and what happened to his life when his home was robbed in 1952 and how the police investigation into a home robbery ended up with a accusation of uh, 
immorality to him, which would ultimately fill him up with forced injections from the UK government, and he'd be dead in 1954. In happier moments, though, let's jump back to 1930s. And Mr. Turing has just created the modern computer. He did this by solving an algorithm challenge of that era called the decision problem. It's actually uh, translated from German, and I won't even make an attempt at pronouncing the actual decision problem in German. But Alan Turing's solution to the decision problem was a conceptual device called the Turing machine. And if you want to build one, you will need just five things. Okay? Uh, take a pad of paper here. You need a loop of tape. You need a floating eyeball, a book of rules, an eraser, and a pencil. And sadly, the floating eyeball is the most important piece there. If you can't get all five of them, you can also make a Turing machine with a film editor, the kind of reel-to-reel -reel thing that you uh, can edit film with, and you just need a blank reel of film. So basically just a bunch of plastic that can, you can run back and forth on a film editor and a dry erase marker. And that's how I was shown a Turing machine in school. School budgets couldn't afford the floating eyeballs. But Turing machines are really fun to learn. They're pretty easy to learn, I think, or I feel like I can explain it in a simple way. So in a minute, we'll show you how to make a three-segment Turing machine that's going to be three separate squares. And you'll learn how to finish out that code using the Turing machine method. And then you'll learn how a 5,000 long segment or a 75,000 long segment might work to solve its own problem, its own coding problem, in an identical way. Turing machines are neat. And if any of the details mentioned here on Mr. Turing intrigue you, and they should, it's a complex person, I encourage you to look up as much as you can on Alan Turing and his work. Mr. Uh, Turing is uh, really Mr. Computer Science. The basics of computer science were established by his concepts. And as I don't do coding examples very often on this show, I'd like to talk about my penchant to find poetry in coding, because I don't enjoy coding. I can code, but I'm not, uh, it's not where I find my happiness. <laughs> it's more like, you know, uh, survival. I code for survival. But uh, I do like finding things in coding that delights me. And this is a short poem about escape characters unescape, which is my favorite word as a concept in coding. It's in escape characters that you find the word unescape. Unescape is my favorite phrase in computing. There can be poetry anywhere if you look for it, and computer code is full of a lot of beautiful examples. There's bad phrasing in, in computing. I won't list many of them, but ping or finger comes to mind. But there's also wonderful words and wonderful functions. And this is how you unescape. U-N-E-S-C-A-P-E. -E. Ready for instructions on how to unescape? You unescape a phrase to make an escaped character visible. To escape something is to tell a program to ignore a special character. You'll encounter a need for this when you have the same special character bracketing a phrase of code. 
let's say you're using an apostrophe to bracket a phrase. So if you have a string of code that says, turn left at 6 p.m., you would bracket that command, turn left at 6 p.m., in between two apostrophes. Apostrophe at the beginning, apostrophe at the end. But what if the code was turn left at Bob's house at 6 p.m.? That poses a problem because Bob's house has an apostrophe in it. So the code that is bracketed by the apostrophe turn left at Bob's house at 6 p.m. apostrophe suddenly has an apostrophe in the middle there. And so the code actually thinks that the code is turn left at Bob. And then that would be, you know, apostrophe. Then S, house, at 6 p.m. apostrophe would just show up as, you know, non-code. Or the code that should run at turn left at Bob's house at 6 p.m. doesn't run. That's how that one apostrophe in Bob's house breaks the entire function of turn left at Bob's house at 6 p.m. And the way that you make that work is you use an escape character just to tell the program itself to ignore that apostrophe. And so it suddenly just becomes an escaped apostrophe. That's It gets out of having to be a functional part of the bracket. And this is usually done with a forward slash so or some other special character. So you would write Bob's out as B-O-B forward slash apostrophe S. And then you would still be able to turn left to Bob's house at 6 p.m. as a complete function. And that's how escape characters work. Riveting, isn't it? But sometimes you want a code to render inside that escaped text too. And that's where an unescape happens. So let's say the phrase was turn left and scream with the and in and scream being an ampersand, the and, the and symbol. And you might want to first escape that phrase. So turn left and scream includes what visually will look like an ampersand. But after you escape it, you want to remove the code rendering that ampersand, which is incidentally ampersand, <laughs> AMP, semicolon. You want to print, you want it to get through the function point, but then go back and become an ampersand properly. And if you want that to happen, you have to sort of do a reverse escape. And what that will do is you will unescape it after it has been escaped. So it's been escaped to not interfere with the function, but then it will unescape itself. So the ampersand will render and it'll show up correctly on the screen. And that's just sort of a complex existence that sort of, you know, it also, my uh, interest in talking about it is sort of evidence of the madness that comes over you from coding and the peculiar, unique mind that would actually find math or something like that truly exciting and beautiful. Because there's a chance that if you're Alan Turing, you saw code linguistically and saw math as a kind of poetry. So I could maybe say to Alan, you know, Alan, unescape as a word doesn't exist. The closest is unescapable, meaning you can't escape. And unescape, in a way, makes an escape not happen. <laughs> you have unescaped the escape characters, and now they display correctly. And he would probably nod and go, of course. And I point it out as an example of the poetry found in something like computing code. And gosh, if uh, we can't thank Alan Turing enough for our modern world. In terms of whether or not Alan Turing would like an escape or escape conversations, 
I could be correct or incorrect about this. Those are the binary odds on being correct, 50-50, right or wrong. And that's the basis for computing, incidentally, most of the time. 50-50, yes or no, on or off, true or false, do or don't. To develop a minimal concept like that, you need to be able to be maximal in your understanding of ideas and to create the modern computer, you need to be a maximalist, and Alan Turing was one, and an incredible code breaker. He has a huge assortment of devices and techniques that bear his name as an inventor. The list of names would be of interest to any synthesizer person, as they sound like an amazing row of products. The Turing machine, the bomb, or the Bombay, never understood how to say that correctly, but B-O-M-B-E, then the Hut 8. That sounds like a synth you want to play, right? Then Turingery, that's a kind of thing, and Delilah, which I think we mentioned. That's just a beautiful name for a device, Delilah. It sounds purple to me somehow. I love it. There's an art form to how he assembled ideas, and Alan Turing's work on cryptography and code analysis would benefit both the war effort in World War II and later telephone technology for Bell Labs, a bunch of other stuff. We'll talk about the first one, the Turing machine, in a moment. Alan Turing's impact on the world ranks right up there with Einstein and Tesla, but it would take decades for the British government to recognize it. Instead, even after the war, which he helped win, they prosecuted him for his sex preference and in 1952, he was charged with homosexual acts, which they put in quotes when they give you the, the charge, which was a criminal offense based on a law written in 1885. I mentioned how this charge is a great example of how certain at-risk groups fear calling the police, incidentally. And here is the example. He was charged with uh, being a homosexual because he was calling the police to report a home burglary. And during the investigation for the, uh, for the burglary, it was determined that the burglar knew a friend of Alan Turing's, a man named Arnold Murray. And the police then changed the focus of their investigation from the burglary, which they seem to have solved, to instead the relationship between Murray and Turing, and they determined, the police, that the friend of the burglar was in fact the connection to Alan Turing having a gay relationship. This was with Arnold Murray. And so the burglar subsequently was treated much lighter than the homeowner, as the police then moved to focus on prosecuting Alan Turing for being gay. So essentially, Alan Turing's house was broken into and the person who did it was a friend of somebody he was in a relationship with. And once the police determined that, they leaned in heavily on this war hero to admit to being gay or not. And this example of prejudice just by itself should be enough of a horror to consider because that's stressful. This is how unprotected people felt when they were gay at that moment in history. If you'd, like an if you'd like an American example, you might want to look up Alger Hiss, and specifically the Alger Hiss story. That's a good article on the web. That's A-L-G-E-R-H-I-S-S. -S. The Alger Hiss story is pretty damn sad, too. 
really, uh, no one was safe in the 50s from this kind of lifestyle abuse. And that's part of why the 1960s happened, cracking that open. Who cares if you're gay kind of stuff. And who cares if you're gay, by the way? It sounds pretty serious what I'm talking about, but sure as hell mattered in the 50s, especially 1952. And Alan Turing got some of the worst of this shameful, brutal unkindness. It was at the time considered a treasonous to be gay and be in a position of the government. The rationale was that you opened yourself up to be blackmailed and you also were considered an amoral person or some nonsense like that. Incidentally, uh, in America, the people who are most anti-gay tend to be, in my assessment, the most, you know, amoral people. You know, the Republican Party is plenty amoral. But, dot, 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 Turing uh, was given a choice by the government. First, they stripped him of all his uh, security clearances and all the things that he'd earned, just took away his life, and then they gave him one choice. He could have jail or probation. And Turing accepted probation for being gay, and then the UK government said that the probation also included forced injections of the, at the time, equivalent of estrogen. This was a good decade before the pill, by the way. So estrogen for women wasn't even figured out yet. And the estrogen or the fake or the uh, pseudoestrogen that was injected into Alan Turing was intended to lower his sex drive and make him, uh, you know, without desire was the whole idea because of this uh, bestial interest in men. And the estrogen itself changed his anatomy. That included growing breast tissue, which if that's a decision, that's fine. But if it's forced on you, that's a horror. And and as I said, all his security clearances were revoked. And it was all a bunch of shame and prejudice. You know, I mean, it's kind of like tarring somebody, you know. And so for a year, after the turmoil of these weird experimental injections and this loss of a life, at age 41, Turing committed suicide. He did so by eating an apple full of injected cyanide, and he was found dead. So that's sort of what I think when I hear about Alan Turing being on a a 50-pound banknote. And I I don't know what you're thinking when you see it, but it's just something to be mindful of and not, and not, (laughs) not, I don't know, the fact that it's currency, I was like, don't buy him off. Don't buy Alan Turing off. That's kind of tacky name a building after him. I'm sure there are some, but I don't know, just being put on money makes it seem weird to me. I mean, I have to think Alan Turing probably had some sort of, this is probably perhaps incorrect. I could be totally wrong, but I have to think Alan Turing probably had a kind of Asperger's or some sort of autism to be such a savant in this category. And it was probably horrifying to him. You know, he probably had no idea of how to deal with the cops when they were talking to him about this. It's weird stuff. Anyway, the UK has actually uh, taken some steps to apologize for this and beginning in 2009 uh, with an official apology for what they did to Alan and then amnesty for anybody else who had been previous victims of this kind of anti-gay prosecution to have their uh, records cleared their criminal records cleared. So that's cool. And that's uh, casually referred to as the Alan Turing law when the government sort of cleans that up. So that's good. You know, they're doing their own to do it, but 
found it a uh, I found it triggering to hear that he was being put on money. Incidentally, uh, there are two steps to being forced to take injections from the UK government at that time. It was a two-step. You had to screw up twice. And I don't think Alan Turing screwed up twice. You are first cautioned and then convicted. Cautioned. You are cautioned for being gay, and then you are convicted for being gay. And I just wonder, can you imagine being cautioned for being in love with the wrong person? Or even worse, never being able to find the right partner because you have to be so secretive. You know, this stuff is a crazy part of our past, and it's not even distant past. You know, the 1950s is a lot, you know, closer. I know it'll be about 100 years and 30 years or so, but that's math that I just did. I just said 2020 plus 30 equals 2050. Alan Turing, watch out, buddy. I got that math on you. So let's uh, jump into math, because I didn't mean to go on for that length on the history behind Alan Turing, but, you know, if you don't know about it, it's kind of interesting. Before the... uh pill existed for women, they were experimenting with estrogen to not treat homosexuality, but punish you for it. You know, it's the government, not medicine saying, you know, you need to uh, curb your uh, interest in living. But if you're interested in what Alan Turing should be known for, it is his brilliant mind. And now we'll be happier while we talk about this. You should look into how his concepts basically inform any proper computer science degree. And as a uh, Bank of England officially shared 50-pound banknote goes into circulation in June of this year, it should be great news for Turing and his accomplishments. That's the binary side of this. I'm doing the other side now of how to view the banknote. Just to give you some some idea on my thinking there. I was looking at the images of the Bank of England as shared on the note. Anyway, inclusion on a banknote is important, but it's also complicated. And obviously here in America, we're looking at including Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill. And that will be incredible when it happens. So I'm for the idea of giving the power of currency to correct a wrong done. Let's talk about Turing's first great invention. It's a conceptual invention that you can apply to nearly any computer. It's called the Turing machine, and it works on true or false statements. Think of it as a row of tape, and above that tape is an eyeball in a box. The tape is moving, and the tape itself is segmented into squares. And inside the squares would be single zero or one integers, either a one or a zero. And you could say a one for yes and a zero for no if you want. So yes or no, and the eyeball will look at each square. To begin, you might want to just pull out a piece of paper and draw 20 squares and randomly write one or zero in each of them. And let's solve a problem together. Now, incidentally, the number of the square is an identifier. And that's something that we still do in coding. If you've ever used a text editor that's meant for code, you're likely familiar with a thing called the line number. And this is roughly similar. Instead of a line number, it's a square number. And so in looking at code, somebody might say the error is on line 14. Each of these squares have a number two. So those 20 squares that you've drawn out, it's square one, two, three, four, all the way up to 20. And they would enter the Turing machine as a problem to be solved they aren't correctly rendering out the zeros and ones in the right order. So you are the eyeball. 
and you only look at one square at a time. You are the eyeball and you can read these zeros and ones because you speak that code, by the way. This information adds up to a question that you can read as zeros and ones, and it will be redistributed as an answer that is solved. Now to make this even more visual, look inside your pocket. You're an eyeball with a pocket. There should be a small booklet inside, and it will have all the rules for solving this problem. You are the eyeball. You can look at this rule book, and you will look through the rules every time you're at a new square. So we have this row of 20 squares, and we've actually gone and connected the end of one piece of that tape to the beginning. So you have kind of a, a cassette loop of those 20 squares on a tape. And you can put it on a film viewer and you can spin it back and forth left to right because you're gonna need to go either to the left or to the right to go through this whole code. And you can begin in the middle. It doesn't matter which square you first look at. The way Turing's machines work is that you have instructions in your rule book, and we'll discuss that. And you can either edit this square or it's correct. And then you don't need that at to edit it. And when the code is solved is when every single one of those squares has been changed to be correct. And then it can loop endlessly. It's a program that works, you know. So you're beginning on your loop and you are the eyeball and you are looking first at square five. Inside square five is a zero and you open up your rule book and you pull up to the square five in your rule book. And it says, if this is a one, then move left. Or if this is a zero, then you will erase it, write the number one, and then move to square 12. So do you understand the difference here? If it was already a one, you'd move to square six, but it was a zero. So instead you edit it to be a one and then you jump to square 12. And so you move the tape spool and you go to square 12 and evaluate the rule book for square 12. It's kind of like choose your adventure in this way, but you're constantly editing things or if they're correct, you're just moving on. And eventually the row of 20 squares would be rewritten correctly so that every square is the correct zero or one according to the rule book. And you would never need to edit any of them. They would be a solved problem. This becomes much more complicated if the code is 5,000 squares long. And in that instance, it might be that line 47 would either proceed to uh, line 48 or you would edit it and jump to line 2,708. And eventually you would go through this where all 5,000 lines were correct and it would just spool around endlessly, never needing to be corrected and bounced around. And so what the Turing machine concept roughly describes is what any computer on the planet does to solve problems. All computing code roughly evaluates ones and zeros, follows instructions, and either manipulates or keeps ones and zeros either in databases or other places to solve problems. In fact, the term Turing complete is still used as a way to test any code base. Nothing can beat a Turing machine for its efficiency. It can merely pass the Turing test and become Turing complete compliant. So let's make a super simple Turing problem. This should 
explain rather well what uh, how it works. Just draw three squares. Put zero in square one, one in square two, and then zero in square three. And so you should look at them as zero, one, zero. And the problem will be solved when we change them all to be ones or one, one, one. So you are the eyeball and let's start at square three. The log book or the rule book says that if this is a one, again, it's a zero, but if this is a one, move to square two. But if it is a zero, it is a zero. Edit it to be a one and move to square one, okay? So you edit square three now to be a one and the squares now read zero, one, one, and you move as instructed to the rules to square one. The same rule on square one exists. If this is a one, move it to square three. But if it is a zero, edit it to be a one and move to square two. You make the edit on square one and move to square two. And the three squares now read one, one, one. Square two is already a one. No edit needed. Now they are all edited to be a one. And let's look at the rules. In the logbook, it says that if square three is one, move to square two. If square two is a one, move to square one. If square one is a one, move to square three. And that rule means that this is gonna loop now forever or perpetually, never needing to be corrected. And the code is accurate. Once you have done these edits, Using the Turing machine process, the machine, which is this loop of three squares, will perpetually move in a loop going 321, 321, 321. And congratulations, you've solved the problem of Turing, I'm sorry, turning a 010 into a 111. So, this is the idea of how a Turing machine works and has been brilliantly translated, incidentally into a lot of ideas. And for this week's uh, side A, we'll talk about how it's been turned into an electronic music module. The module itself is called appropriately a Turing machine. And it's not an exact translation of how the logbook works, but it has its charm. And let's discuss the Turing machine module in our demo for this week for side A, entitled Turing Machine Music. <laughs>